You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. We are here every week at this time. If you are a regular listener, welcome back and thanks for listening. If you're a new listener, this is where we talk about what's going on in the economy and we look at it through the lens of what's happened historically. If something's happened in the past, when things look about like they do today, we can assume that things may happen that way again. And uh, we believe that your history professor was right. Those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. On today's program, I'll be joined by Mr. Jay Taylor. I think the theme in the markets over the past uh, couple of weeks since the Fed rate cut back on July 31 has been that stocks are down and gold is up. Well, Mr. Taylor publishes a newsletter about uh, gold mining stocks as well as technology stocks, and uh, we're going to get his take on what's going on and what his forecast is for the long term. And I am going to also break down for you what is going on in the markets um, from my perspective. I mean, when you take a look at what happened to stocks uh, right after the Fed cut interest rates on July 31 by a quarter point, and if you listen to uh, the program uh, I recorded uh, prior to the Fed rate cut, I forecast we would see a quarter point, perhaps even a half point uh, cut in rates. And now there is discussion of another quarter point emergency cut as I am recording today's program just a few days before it airs. Well, when you take a look at what's happened historically in the stock market when the Fed has cut interest rates, really the market has rallied. I mean, it, it, it really doesn't make sense when you think about it because rate cuts typically don't mean that things are going well in the economy. The Fed sees some problems. So what do they do? They cut interest rates to try to provide some stimulus for the economy. Now, typically in the past, as I said, when the Fed has cut interest rates, the market has rallied. Uh, more easy money and the market participants get excited and they bid up stocks. But that's not what's happened this time. This time, I would argue that the response of falling stocks is really a response that might be a little bit more normal and makes a little bit more sense. Now, when you take a look at what market analysts said after the stock market decline, many blamed the stock market decline on escalating trade war threats. In fact, there was an article in Market Watch uh, that was published uh, on August 2. And I'll give you just a bit from that article. Stocks ended at their lowest levels in a month on Friday as investors worried that President Trump's escalation of the trade war with China would impact economic growth. The benchmark S&P 500 index fell for a fifth straight day to record the steepest weekly loss since last December's sell-off. Stocks extended losses after China vowed to retaliate against President Trump's decision on Thursday to impose 10% tariffs on the remaining $300 million of imports from China not already subject to levies. Second quarter corporate earnings for S&P 500 companies are now also on track to record a decline for two consecutive quarters for the first time since 2016. Also not good news. Now, certainly the trade war is a factor 
in the decline of stocks, and I'll talk about that a bit more in this segment and give you my forecast as well, but it's far from the only factor. Now, if you look at what's really happened as far as trade with China, uh, the, the, there's certain no doubt that the tariffs have impacted trade with China. In fact, in Miss Shedlock's excellent blog this past week, he published a chart that showed the share of total trade with the United States. And in it, he looked at the trade the United States does with the countries of Mexico, Canada, China, Japan, and Germany. Now, China was, at the beginning of this year, the number one trading partner of the United States. However, year over year, U.S. exports to China are falling significantly and vice versa, and now Canada and Mexico are the largest two trading partners of the United States. And it's not because Canada and Mexico are really engaging in more trade with the United States. It's that trade with China has simply fallen off. Now, trade wars obviously make market participants nervous. And to some extent, trade wars contribute to declining earnings. As trade tensions rise and trade wars escalate, profits decline, and obviously that has a negative impact on stocks. But there's more to it than that. There's that dynamic that profits decline when trade wars escalate, but you have to also consider the stock market has been propped up over the past decade since the financial crisis, and there's really no denying this. The easy money policies of the Fed has created demand for stocks. Now, I open the program by talking about the fact that we like to look at things from an historical perspective. And history teaches us that whenever money is printed, it will have to find a home. And whenever money is printed, we get a prosperity illusion, I like to call it, for a period of time. Typically, newly created money finds a home in stocks, and in real estate. Now, this was true prior to the Panic of 1837, prior to the Long Depression of 1873, prior to the Great Depression, and more recently, the Great Recession. In every one of these circumstances, easy money policies were engaged in, and stocks and real estate rallied. However, in each of these circumstances as well, Newly created money propped up stocks, causing a bubble that eventually burst. Now, the policy response to the Great Recession was more easy money. Essentially, the policy response was the cause of the problem to start with. Well, easy money means low interest rates, and then when interest rates are at zero, and that's not creating the desired outcome, then policymakers resort to outright money creation. Stocks and real estate after the Great Recession responded as they have most often historically. Now, as I said, the Fed cut interest rates last week. And interestingly, for the first time, as I stated, stocks did not react positively. You know, the Dow advanced on Monday and Tuesday prior to the rate cut but declined significantly Wednesday through Friday after the Fed announced the quarter-point rate cut. 
Now, as I said, this may be more of a normal reaction, more of a rational reaction. And perhaps this signals a change in the sentiment of stock market investors. See, up until this point, stock market participants reacted to the Fed rate cut by rushing in and buying more stocks, causing the stock market to rally overall. But as I've stated, this time, market participants may actually be grasping the reality of the situation. And the reality is that a rate cut is really not good news. A rate cut means that the Fed senses economic weakness. It may be that we just got the first honest reaction to an interest rate cut since the financial crisis. Now, there are other factors here as well, which I will explore in the last segment of today's program and then give you my forecast moving ahead. Stock buybacks have been a big factor in the market rallying over the past couple years. I will discuss that in some detail as well. And then as we talked about on last week's program with economist John Williams, there is the actual value or purchasing power of the U.S. dollar. As the dollar is devalued, and there's been talk of currency manipulation in the news this past week, uh, typically currency manipulation simply means devaluing a currency. And it's a game in which countries engage in order to try to make their currency weaker to make their exports more attractive. So this just simply will exacerbate the already existing trade war. So I'll be talking about that in some detail in the last segment, but I would encourage you, if you haven't already done so, to learn more about this. There's a lot riding on it. Your retirement may be riding on it. And there's a couple of resources I'll suggest before I go to the break. One is to go to Amazon and get a copy of the book, New Retirement Rules. It's a book that I wrote that was on the Amazon bestseller list back in 2016, and it gives you historical examples and what would have worked for you historically and can give you some ideas. You can also always go to our website where there are a number of resources available for free. The website is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, www.retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can listen, listen to the podcast there and also request some free resources, and I'd encourage you to do that as well. I'll be back with Jay Taylor after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen, and uh, I'm excited to be joined today uh, by Jay Taylor. Uh, Jay is the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks Report. You can learn more about that report at miningstocks.com. And Jay also hosts the popular radio program, Turning Hard Times into Good Times. And you can learn more about his program at jaytaylormedia.com. That's J A Y. TaylorMedia.com. And Jay, welcome back to the program. Well, it's nice to be back, Dennis. Jay, I always like to, to talk to you because you have a, uh, a really good grasp of uh, how money works. And it's amazing to me not only how many, how many citizens don't really have a good idea of how money works, but how many really financial advisors and, and alleged experts uh, don't really know how money works. And when you look at today's money and compare it to the money that we had 50 years ago, 
it's a whole lot different. And can, can you explain uh, how money has evolved? Well, sure. I mean, since uh, the big change in my lifetime, and I was a young man in 1971, when Richard Nixon decided that, uh, that well, when gold was leaving the coffers of the United States because we were creating so much money to pay for the Vietnam War and for socialism here in America, de Gaulle and other countries, but primarily de Gaulle, said, we don't want your dollars anymore. We want, we want gold. We want real money. So under Bretton Woods, that was the agreement that for every $35 that other countries had, they could send it back to the U.S. and receive an ounce of gold. So de Gaulle understood that the United States was, on a, was going to start printing money like mad to pay for its empire and to expand it. And so he opted to take the real money, the asset-based money, as opposed to the debt-based money that we've been forced to use in August 15, 1971, when Nixon took us off the gold standard. So that enabled the United States to finance its military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us about. Uh, it allowed the people that make the weapons and are involved in that business to get bigger and richer. It allowed Washington to start spending more money for socialism. Uh, and it didn't seem like it was going to cost us anything because, you know, neither Johnson or Nixon wanted to tell us, to tell the Americans that we were going to have to raise our taxes to pay for war, to pay for Vietnam, or to pay for socialism. We could all have just a freebie, right? And so Keynesian economics, uh, economic theory, played right into that notion that Keynes thought that the best way to create wealth is to create money out of nothing. He thought governments should spend more than they take in, especially during tough times. The problem with politicians is they like to spend more in tough times and good times, and they never do cut back. And so the United States then became the world, gained the world's reserve currency, and it did so not only, uh, it, you know, you might ask, how could we be the world's reserve currency if we no longer have our currency backed by gold? And nobody else had their currency backed by gold either, nor are they allowed to by the IMF, but that's another story. So anyway, we started with this uh, debt-based monetary system, no gold behind it. Uh, so it allowed the United States then uh, to print money, endless amounts of money. And to make that possible, though, we have to realize that President Nixon sent Kissinger to Saudi Arabia and arranged for them to have the OPEC nations demand payment for their oil in dollars. So now you think about it all around the world, anybody that is a net importer of oil, they're going to have to find dollars to buy that oil. So that's what happened after 1971. The OPEC nations come together with Saudi Arabia heading that up. And the United States also, in an exchange for agreement, uh, the agreement for Saudi Arabia to demand dollars for oil, the um, we also uh, promised them to use our military to keep the, the royal family in power. So that was the that was the agreement that Kissinger made. So that allowed us to start printing money like mad. We did in the 1970s. We had double-digit inflation by the end of the towards the end of the 70s during Jimmy Carter's presidency, um, and and we did it because we started creating huge amounts of money out of nothing, and that that spurred demand, and that caused uh, bottleneck shortages and so forth. Uh, and so it got real serious at the point where we could have started with a hyperinflation, in fact, double-digit inflation. To give you an idea, my first mortgage was a 17.5% mortgage in Queens here in New York City where I live. Well, Paul Volcker came in. The Europeans actually said, you have got to get a handle on your currency or we're going to run away from it because they didn't want to own a bunch of dollars that became worthless. 
in terms of purchasing power. So Volcker went into the Fed and he slammed the brakes on the money creation, and that caused interest rates to go up dramatically, very, very high. The rates went up to, to as I just said, the, my mortgage was a 17.5%. Treasuries were 12 14% and so forth. So that killed inflation, and it really allowed uh, capital formation to a great extent because now all of a sudden people sold things they didn't need to have, and they and they put their money in uh, in in, uh, in dollars. In fact, that crushed the gold bull market then too, because gold went from thirty five dollars to eight fifty by nineteen uh, nineteen eighty. And so the uh, and so people really started to save instead of spend. It was a contra to Keynesian economics. People started to save, and that provided capital formation, which served America extremely well during the 1980s, during the Reagan years, and we had a tremendous growth. Uh, but the Alan Greenspan, the Federal Reserve people, started printing money because it felt so good. We had the 1987 stock market crash. Uh, Greenspan and uh, the president, Reagan, they put together something called um, the Plunge Protection Team, or the President's Working Group, and they went in when the stock market seized up in 1987. There were no buyers for the best stocks in America, and when that happened, uh, they closed the they closed the stock market, and the and the uh, Federal Reserve and a number of the major banks got together and decided how they're going to rig the market from then on, how they're going to make sure that the market doesn't fall out of bed the way it did on uh, on that date in 1987. And uh, and so then we started printing money like mad after that. The stock market came roaring back, and it felt oh so good, 1987. Uh, we created a dot-com bubble in 1980. We had another crash in 1980, uh, and then we printed even more money faster and faster, and we had another, uh, another orgy until the uh, housing uh, market bubble collapsed in 2008. And then we created the mother of all money creation, uh, quantitative easing that we've talked about before, massive amounts of money created, creating now what I think is the bubble of all time, the mother of all bubbles, the, uh, let's say the everything bubble. And we are now in a position, I think, where the world is teetering on the brink of something very dramatic on the downside, unfortunately. Uh, and, um, you know, we have it's leading to trade wars now. It's leading to currency wars. But all these countries are pre creating huge amounts of money. And now, much like the 1930s, trying to create money to have an advantage in trade over each other. So the currency wars, the, ability, the, the race to the bottom, as they say, is setting us up now for, I think, uh, massive declines in purchasing power of currencies. And at the same time, of course, you're seeing gold rise very dramatically. I think the the global markets are starting to catch on to the fact that the emperor is wearing no clothes and that we are in a very, very – the Fed and other central banks are in a no-win situation. They cannot print more and more faster and faster. If they don't do that, the equity markets will crash. Uh, they probably will anyway. They're down big today for sure. And, you know, it's it's just hard to say, but I think we're running towards the end of this situation where interest rates with each cycle get lower – and you can't raise them because right now, a $22 trillion deficit in the United States means a 1% increase increases our interest expense annually by $220 billion. So it's on a 
I think that we're, you know, on a train running down the tracks very, very rapidly. We have a steep curve up ahead, and there's no way we can stay on the tracks. That's my my belief. Not my wish by any means, but I have always believed that once we went off the gold standard, once we started printing money infinitely, realizing that that money is created by debt, and debt is growing much more rapidly than income, that we are in a heap of trouble. And uh, I think the gold markets are starting to say that. The treasury markets are very, very strong now because that's that's the uh, the primary um, safety haven in the in the minds of most people. But I think as they start to realize and focus that the currency itself is in trouble, we'll start to see uh, a move, an even bigger, much bigger move towards asset-based money. Well, Jay, in fact, I just wrote a piece uh, last week, and uh, in it I quoted a Congressional Budget Office uh, statistic that said at today's interest rates of roughly 2.5%, I think was the number used, yeah. uh, the cost of service to debt will increase from about $300 billion to nearly a trillion in just nine years. Now, if yeah. interest rates were to go up just to, say, a more normal rate, mm-hmm. you could be looking at almost $2 trillion just to service the debt in nine years, and certainly sometime between now and nine years from now, it has to stop. I mean, that's just those numbers just don't work. You can't even print enough money to do that. So, right, exactly. Well, well what's course, your? Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. What's your timing on all this? I mean, do you? Do you? I mean, we've got to be getting close. Yeah, it's hard to say. You know, when when the train will go off the rails. Uh, I think that if you watch what's happening every day, the, there's growing tensions now between China and Russia. Uh, Iran and probably Turkey is thrown in there as well. These are countries that are tired of being told what to do, uh, having sanctions imposed on them by the United States. And they're tired of buying our treasuries, and Russia, in fact, has completely stopped. We've gotten by over these years because of the kindness of strangers. They bought our treasuries. They're no longer doing so. And uh, and China's not particularly interested in f- helping to finance our military that tells them they can't control or patrol their own sea lanes and have control of their own sea lanes for trade. So I think that the United States, as as an empire, has expanded. It's looking for new countries to control and to dictate to, and the rest of the world is saying we're tired of it. And you know I don't know what's going to. I hope I hope to God that we don't have a fi- uh, a shooting war, but we certainly do have already. I think a currency war. And, you know, where this is going to end, only the Almighty knows. But I do think that we're getting very close to some some very difficult times ahead. And I think, you know, nobody in their right mind could wish for what's what's happening and what's taking place. But if you see it coming, I think the best thing you can do is to try to prepare. And that means exchange those increasingly worthless dollars for real money, gold or silver, or a combination of the two. So... So, Jay, gold, silver, well, what's your take on, and we'll get to gold and silver significantly in the next segment, but what's your take on other tangible assets, real estate, things like yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you can own a lot of uh, you know things that don't lose their value when money is printed that and that have useful, uh, you know, like real estate certainly has a use, uh, there's going to be a new monetary system in its place at some point in time. And if you're free of debt and you own assets that are of use, I suggest you start with gold and silver because they're liquid and you know you're tangible and you can move them around more easily than you can a house or something. But yes, a combination of real estate, agricultural, uh, you know, gar- gardens and an ability to raise food and all that sort of thing, uh, whatever you have, uh, and and things that your talents that you have, if you can develop if you can develop skills that are needed in the workplace. I think right now we have far too many people seeking to be academic geniuses who, and we don't have enough people that know how to uh, fix the plumbing in houses. So 
you know, those are some those are some things I think to keep in mind when times get difficult. We are chatting today with Mr. Jay Taylor. Jay is the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks Report. You can learn more at miningstocks.com. And I would encourage you to listen in to his radio program, as I often do, Turning Hard Times into Good Times. You can learn more at jtaylormedia.com. That's J-A-Y, jtaylormedia.com. I will continue my conversation with Jay when our LA Radio returns. Stay with me. are listening to RLA Radio. I am chatting today with Jay Taylor. Uh, I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. If you're just joining me, um, there's a couple uh, websites I would encourage you to check out. Uh, one is miningstocks.com. You can learn more about Jay's uh, newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks uh, at that site. And you can also visit jaytaylormedia.com. That's jaytaylormedia.com and learn more about his radio program, Turning Hard Times into Good Times. So, Jay, in the last segment, we were talking a bit about uh, getting away from paper money assets and moving more toward tangible real money assets. And you had suggested that people consider gold and silver to start because it's really more liquid. It's more uh, more usable. So uh, let's just start with gold, silver. Should we look at more gold, more silver, some of each? What's your take? Well, certainly uh, silver from any sort of historical perspective is is much uh much less expensive relative to gold i mean it's it's very cheap compared to gold let's put it that way and generally when we're in a bull market as i'm quite convinced we are now in the precious metals silver will outperform gold uh of course that said you have to have the space to store the silver it takes a lot more space to store the same value of silver that's one consideration i think um well, it's hard to say, but silver also has industrial uses too. So there's always that aspect, whereas gold is almost almost completely a monetary asset. So people can store or have silver. I think from a silver investment, I will say this: that recently, when I saw silver break through its uh, its uh, the ceilings that it was that was holding it down recently, that I felt I needed to have more silver in my portfolio. So I went out, sold some gold stocks that I didn't really want to sell to make sure I would have more uh, silver mining companies and that's that's what I did. So I think silver uh, a, a mix is good and remember that gold was confiscated by the United States government in the 1930s. That could happen again and silver was not and silver is an industrial metal. So you know there there may be some reasons uh, good reasons to diversify holding it yourself a little bit at least in your own coffers in some safe place in your own home or wherever you have uh and then maybe diversify where you own your gold if you have enough to spread it out into different ge- geographical de- uh, districts as well because you just don't know how governments will respond. When, when times get really, really tough, you can bet your bottom dollar or your, your bottom ounce of gold that they'll be coming after it one way or another, either through taxes or through outright confiscation. That's a possibility. And so um, I think you need to keep those things in mind. So, Jay, when you talk about owning gold or silver versus owning mining stocks, uh, can you talk about the historically, historically speaking anyway, the price relationship between the actual metal and, uh, as a rule, the, the mining companies that, that, that mine the metals? 
Yeah, sure. You generally uh, have a ratio. You generally have some leverage factor there. Uh, it's it's just really hard to say though because if um, you know it, 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 because when you're when you own a mining company, you're owning a business. And so the business is going to be, if it's profitable, it will do very well. So it's, every mine is different too. So it's hard to make a general rule. You know, I would say that uh, if you have, you know, if, if, if the cost of getting the metal out of the ground, you're better off having high grade underground mines where you have less cost for energy, less cost for labor. You know, if you're, if you're moving a ton of rock for, with one ounce of gold, as opposed to a hundred tons, of rock for one ounce of gold, the costs are a lot less for the higher grades. So those are some things. It's hard to say, but generally you you can expect uh, considerable leverage, maybe two to three times on average. So if the gold price goes up 100, if the gold price goes up 10%, you might see, you know, the mining shares go up 30% or something like that as a general rule. Now, on the other hand, there's the exploration companies that I focus on more, and there's a different dynamic that comes into play there. If they are making major discoveries, then the value of the stock can go up no matter what. I mean, it can go up 10 times the price of gold or, or, or much more than that. And there are some very exciting things taking place. You know, we've had a few years uh, when capital has been formed and uh, holes put in the ground, a lot of work done. And when the gold price is lower, these mining companies do a lot of low-cost work. But, they're in, but it's work nonetheless that helps them discover and figure out where the gold is in the ground. Uh, there's a lot of technology these days that help you find deposits that were not findable 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. So it's a very exciting industry right now. And uh, I've not, I can say that since I started writing my newsletter in 1981, I can't think of too many times that were, that's been more exciting than right now for the mine exploration companies. Then there's the producers that are producing gold profitably now. And obviously, if gold goes up and their costs don't, then their earnings go up dramatically and the share price rises dramatically as well. So Jay, just to follow up on that thought, um, and I know it varies by mine, probably varies by area, but about what does it cost on average to get an ounce of gold out of the ground? If you call, if you not just the cash cost, but you're looking at uh, you know the, the capital cost and uh, over time and so forth, you know, I think you're probably looking at 800 bucks. It would be sort of a of an average, a more normal one. But there are companies that have three or four hundred dollar costs to get to get their gold out of the ground. And so we look at those those factors, of course, in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, and uh, you know, of course, the companies that are evolving and producing are starting to produce a, a what looks like a mineable deposit. It's an ongoing study to determine what the costs are of getting it out. Those are the kinds of things that, that I look at on an ongoing basis in my newsletter. Fascinating business it is, but a tough one when you're in a bear market, I'll tell you that. So, Jay, if you're just taking the cost of $800 an ounce, if uh, gold were to go up $100 an ounce and my costs don't go up, even yeah. though the price of gold moved maybe 8 or 9%, my profits are actually up 20%. So that kind of that's explains right. the, the difference. That's the, that's the kind of dynamic, yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, so, indeed. And, and I would say that as far as the shares go, some of the companies that are sort of break-even or maybe 12, 13, well, right now the companies that are break-even, it's say $1,400 gold, capital all, all in its sustaining costs and so forth, now, all of a sudden, if gold goes to 15 or 16, those companies that are virtually worthless as far as their share prices because they're, they can't make money, all of a sudden become worth an awful lot more. And in percentage terms, those, those stocks can rise much more than some of the companies that might have a $400 cost basis you know, for producing. So 
Jay, if someone is new to thinking about investing in gold or mining stocks, would you have them buy the physical metal first and then look at buying mining stocks? Or... Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. First, get out of debt as much as possible you know, and own, own the physical, own at least some, some coins, uh, you know, a quarter ounce, half ounce, one ounce coins, have a portfolio of those if you can. Then if you have more, you can store it in, you know, in with some of the services like gold money or some of the others that I follow. Uh, and then, you know, then start to think about mining stocks. And, 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 and even there, I would suggest, you know, I mean, I'd like people to buy my newsletter, but frankly, uh, the safer thing to do is probably and maybe not as much upside, but buy a good mutual fund, you know, like uh, the Tocqueville fund or something like that. Um, I, I I think I would rather buy a fund than an ETF generally, because uh, I know, for example, know the management at, at Tocqueville, and they're very strong, very good people, and they're not just throwing money at an index like some of the ETFs do. So, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, a mutual fund would be good, too, for people that don't want to have to waste their time or don't have an inclination to want to study and learn about the stuff I write about in my newsletter. But for those who do, it's a very exciting ride, especially now. <laughs> well, Jay, talk about the difference between uh, a company that is an established mining company and an exploration company, and what kind of investor might look at each one? Yeah, so if we look at a company, I'll give you an example of one here that I'm that I really like that is a producer that also has great upside potential. It's called Premier Gold Mines. Uh, it trades in the United States. Um, and it is, it is producing profitably now from a mine in Mexico. But more than that, what I really like about them is they're joint venturing with Barrick Gold, one of the largest gold mining companies in the country. They had the projects that Barrick wanted. So Barrick is coming in and spending all of their money and huge amounts of money for potentially huge gold deposits. And as it is, Premier gets carried for a 40% interest. So their market cap, of course, is quite small uh, compared to, uh, to a company like Barrick, which is a big producer. I see this as, a, uh, as kind of a combination of an exploration company, a low-risk exploration company that's producing cash flow positive, uh, and it's going to take quite a ride up uh, with this move. In fact, it's already moved very dramatically since gold is, uh, you know, gold is broken out here. Now, on the other side of it, I would say a company like Klondike Gold is one that I really like. It's one of several. I mean, I could name several of them, but Klondike Gold is one that's uh, earlier stage exploration, but it seems they, they believe they've figured out what the control, the geological control factors are for where the high-grade gold is, uh, is hosted. And this is what is viewed as the mother load, the source for the massive Klondike gold placer mining operations that started in the 1800s. Nobody until now has really started scientifically and ex systematically using modern technology to find the mother load source of this. Klondike, I think, is onto it. I think uh, it's a very exciting story. Very large, very large property with huge structures that are to be drilled. And some drilling is now starting to show some uh, some very sizable uh, high-grade mineralization, and this is certainly one of my favorites. But it's a much higher risk situation, in my view, than uh, than Premier uh, that I just noted. Another one that I really love so much is called Great Bear. They seem to be on to a major discovery in the Red Lake District of Ontario. You've, most of the people probably have heard of a company called Gold Corp. Gold Corp was made, they were, the company making deposit was in the Red Lake District 
of Ontario. And it looks for the world as if Great Bear has found another Red Lake mine, one that's geologically similar, very exciting. The stock is not as cheap as it was. I think I put it in my newsletter. It's something like 40 or 50 cents. It's now $4. But I don't think that's the end of it. They've just really started to explore and develop um, this, this deposit. And I should mention that by contrast in terms of cost, Klondike uh, is about uh, it's about a 30 cent stock U.S., something like that now. Okay, well, our guest today has been Mr. Jay Taylor. Uh, the clock goes quick, Jay, so we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Jay's newsletter is Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. You can learn more at miningstocks.com, and I encourage you to check out also his radio program, Turning Hard Times into Good Times. More information is available at jtaylormedia.com. And, Jay, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Really appreciate you joining us, really appreciate you joining us and hope you'll come back. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me, Dennis. We will be back after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Welcome back. You know, in this segment, I want to continue my discussion of digging into the big stock decline that we saw after the Fed cut interest rates recently. If you're just joining me today, we really saw what I would consider to be more normal behavior after a rate cut, but really it was a bit of an aberration. We haven't seen this type of activity in the market after a rate cut until last week. When the Fed cuts interest rates, obviously they cut interest rates because they see economic weakness and a market decline might seem like a bit of a normal response to that. Wow, the Fed sees weakness in the economy, that's not good, and market participants exit and stocks fall. That, however, is not what has happened up to this point. Up to this point, when the Fed cut interest rates, the stock market rallied, participants got excited, and they bought stocks. However, that's not what happened this time, so perhaps we're seeing a bit more of a normal response and maybe a bit of a return to what would be considered uh, more normal or realistic behavior. Now, there are a couple of things that have contributed to the stock bull market uh, which I didn't have time to talk about in the first segment, and I want to dig into in this segment. One of the big factors that often is not noted or discussed is corporate stock buybacks. And certainly corporate stock buybacks have had a significantly bullish effect on the stock market over the past couple years. There was a CNBC article that was published on July 31, the day of the Fed rate cut, that described how stock buybacks have been used by one company, in this particular example, Apple. And I'm going to give you just a little bit from the article. Stock buybacks have gotten a bad name in many precincts over the past few years, decried as unproductive financial engineering that detracts from corporate investment in growth. But Apple's aggressive use of its copious cash resources to repurchase its shares at modest valuations in recent years has shown the power of buybacks 
for a maturing company in a growth lull. And for Apple, if not the typical company, long-term shareholders have benefited without compromising the company's hiring or spending on capital investment. The slowdown in iPhone unit sales in the past couple years has restrained Apple's overall growth since its fiscal year ended September 30, 2015. And get this, net income this fiscal year is projected to be almost exactly equal to what Apple booked four years ago. Yet, Apple has used a big chunk of its $200 billion in cash, supplemented by about $100 billion in new low-cost debt, to buy back its shares. That causes dividends to go up. And when you take the same net income and divide it by fewer shares, per share earnings increase from $9.22 a share to $11.51 a share this year. So Apple's net income is flat when compared to four years ago, but because the company repurchased, repurchased shares using cash and by acquiring debt with low interest rates, earning per share, earnings per share, I should say, have increased. Now, Apple is just one example of many companies that have engaged in stock buybacks. Stock buybacks increase the earnings per share, and as the article states, maybe financial engineering is a strong term, but certainly it is a bit manipulative. But there is another even more obvious factor affecting the nominal value of stocks and the reported earnings of companies. And that is the value of the U.S. dollar. Since stock values and earnings per share are both reported in U.S. dollars, as the U.S. dollar loses absolute purchasing power, the nominal value of stocks and earnings per share reported in dollars increase, even though on a real absolute basis they are declining. Now bear with me just a minute on this because... It's a bit of a complex point, but also really important to understand. Now, there's a, a terrific site uh, that you might want to check out called Advisor Perspectives. And they recently published a chart that plotted the real advance in stocks after adjusting for inflation since calendar year 2000. Now, they made the inflation adjustments using the Consumer Price Index, which is the most commonly accepted measure of the inflation rate. However, if you listen to last week's program, I had a terrific interview with John Williams, and you can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and download the podcast if you missed last week's program. And Mr. Williams tracks and reports economic data using methodologies formerly used by government agencies prior to changes being made to make the reported data look more favorable. Now, Mr. Williams estimates the true real inflation rate to be significantly higher than the reported rate. Nevertheless, if we use the Consumer Price Index and we take a look at adjusting the advance in stocks for the official inflation rate, one finds that since 2000, calendar year 2000, nearly 19 years ago, the NASDAQ is only 7.4% higher. The Standard & Poor's 500 is 29.2% higher. 
That means the average real gain for the Standard & Poor's 500 using the CPI is 1.5% per year. However, let me give you another metric. An ounce of gold hasn't changed in thousands of years. In March of 2000, the S&P 500 was just over 2200 Gold sold for about $290 an ounce at that time. That means the S&P 500 priced in gold was about 7.5. If you take 2200 and divide it by 290 you get about 7.5. Today, gold um, is actually pushing 1500 The S&P 500 today is... 27, 2800. So let's just say it's about two to one. So basically, in 2000, it took seven and a half ounces of gold to buy the S&P 500. Today, it takes two ounces of gold. Arguably, in real terms, stocks are below their 2000 peak. So what does all this mean? Well, my forecast is simply this. Stocks will continue to decline in real terms. Now, maybe not nominal terms. You may see stock values increase. The reported numbers on the Dow and on the S&P may go up. But when adjusted for the purchasing power of the currency, my forecast is that stocks will continue to decline. Now, there's a couple things you can do if you want to learn more. One of the things I would have you do is attend one of our free educational events. We talk about Social Security maximization as well as these issues. Uh, you can check out socialsecuritydinner.com to see when our next event in your area is. That's socialsecuritydinner.com. And you can also go to the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week. 